approaching now the climax of the scriptures, the climax of the gospel of John. We are approaching the cross, the great passion of Christ. Uh, The title of this sermon is I Am He. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 14. And as you're turning there, just by way of introduction for us to kind of prepare our minds and hearts for what we, we are about to read, we're about to read of the suffering of Christ. And we will see the way that Jesus um, composes himself as he is in the, the peak trial of his life. And I know personally um, many of us here are currently suffering, and I know that, that there's much more that, that people don't know about um, this, oh, the, the, the group of people sitting right here are those who are listening online who cannot come because of cancer or various trials. I know that, that many of us are facing trials, and I also know because of God's word that every one of us will go through significant trials. We will all enter into uh, various seasons of suffering. And as we are in those seasons, um, everything about us is put to the test. Everything about our faith is put to the test. Our theology, our ideas about God, the strength of our faith, it's put to the test as as we experience the, the flames of suffering. And as we approach John 18 and we approach the story of Christ and as he approaches his suffering, Um, John, the author of this gospel, puts Christ on display for us so that that we can see who he really is when he is put to the test. We can see most clearly who he is. Three times in our text, Jesus uh, says, or the words of Christ, I am, or I am he, is stated. It's that, that phrase that has been common throughout the Gospel of John in Greek. It's ego and me. It's this redundant, I am, I am. I am who I am. And oftentimes it can just be an emphatic, I, I am he. But in, in the context of John, Jesus states those words in, in, in moments to display who he really is, that he is God. When he's put to the test, that's who we see. We see the the glory of God. And so as we read through our text, we will see together three qualities of Christ, three qualities of the I am as he approaches his suffering. And and the, the advantage for us, for you, as you behold Christ in his suffering is that in seasons of your own suffering, you could remember who he is, that will be essential for you. That as you go through suffering, that you would have a clear picture of who Christ is. And so let's read together John 18, verses one. We'll read all the way through 14 together. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, after having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. <coughs> it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so God, we again thank you for your word. I thank you, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> that you have given us the word of God, even as you just give us a, a, a story, a record of the arrest of Christ, we have heard your very words. And now, Spirit of God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand what you have spoken and why you have revealed these truths that, that we would behold Jesus, the I am and that as we face seasons of suffering on our, in, in our own lives, Lord, that we would know who you are, that we would have a proper understanding of your sovereignty, we would have a proper understanding of suffering, and that we would have a, a proper understanding of our shepherd who is able to keep us and lead us even through the valley of the shadow of death. So reveal to us Jesus now. It's in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, before we see these three qualities of Christ, in verses one through three, John sets the scene for us. <clears throat> and he does so in such a masterful way that liberal scholars who have a low view of scripture and don't think that, you know, it's all inspired, they are convinced that, that John, a, a fisherman, could not have written this. And it comes up in particular as he begins chapter 18. There is so much beauty in foreshadowing and connecting themes throughout all of Scripture. Every word is so carefully placed that, that scholars who have a low view of the inspiring work of the Spirit think there is no way a simple fisherman could have written this. 
he masterfully sets the scene for the most important story in all of history. And, and it's fitting that he should do a masterful job. So let's just look at the scene for a moment. Verses one through three, the text begins when Jesus had spoken these words. <coughs> and if you recall, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus was in an upper room with his disciples. He was teaching them and comforting them. In chapter 17, he prays this wonderful prayer for them. After he spoke these words, it says, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Now, very quickly, the brook Kidron, if you can picture in your mind a, a square map and the city of Jerusalem is, is in the middle, to the right is this, uh, this it, the, the temple backs up to a hill and it's a steep cliff and there's a brook, a, a, a stream in fact, it's called a wadi, which is like a stream in California, which means it only runs in the wintertime when there's rain. Most of the year, it's dry like our creeks are here. But in the wintertime, there would be water running through there. There's a, it's a steep bank, and, and there's records that even the sacrifice, the, the blood of the sacrifices from the temple would drain into that creek. And it was called the Brook Kidron. Now, it, it was a steep ravine and then it would shoot back up and then on the other side was the Mount of Olives. So it was a, a very close proximity to Jerusalem, but it was outside the city. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning here is the Brook Kidron comes up a few times in the scriptures. There's one very famous story when a king, a king in Jerusalem was betrayed and he departed from his throne in Jerusalem. And the text says he crossed the brook Kidron with his people. And he went weeping and mourning and he went to the Mount of Olives. That story is the story of King David as his son took over the throne. And David crosses this exact ravine and goes to the Mount of Olives. And it is very likely here that John is drawing attention to this exact location that we would have this idea, man, Jesus is He's like, he's like David, or, or really David is like Jesus. He's this small picture of the true king who is, who is being humbled in this moment, who, is, who has been betrayed in this moment. And then John makes the note, where there was a garden. Now that word garden, it's only used seven times in the New Testament. And five times it's used in John 18, 19, and 20. And, and from the other gospels, we know the name of this garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane. John knew this garden because he would often go to this garden with Jesus. And this was a place where Jesus would rest and would pray and would spend time with his disciples. John knew the name of this garden. He was there often. In the other gospels, it gives us the name. But in John, he gives us, and we'll continue to see throughout this story, he gives us so many evidences that he is an eyewitness account. He's like, the guy's name was Malchus, and it was his right ear, and it was the Brook Kidron. But when he comes to describe the Garden of Gethsemane, he's curiously vague. He just says, there was a garden. And in fact, if you want to flip to chapter 19, I want you to see something. John 19, verse 41, at the end of this story, the climax, it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. That same phrase, there was a garden. Now we know it's not the same garden. He wasn't crucified in the garden of Gethsemane. 
but he's drawing attention to the fact that there's a garden going on. That this, this, this picture of a garden bookends the story of the cross. And I'll even spoil a very fun point of a future sermon in John 20. After Jesus rises from the dead, as he was buried in a garden, we see that the women come to find Jesus and he's not in the tomb and Mary's distraught. And in John 20, verse 14, she's speaking to angels saying, where are they taking my Lord? In John 20, verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the what? The gardener. John is drawing our attention to the image and picture of a garden. He, he wants this image to be the backdrop, the scene, the setting for this story. Well, why is he doing that? Why would he want our attention on a, a garden as he's speaking about the cross? Well, you may remember it was in a garden where God first walked with his people. It was in a garden where the first betrayer rebelled against God and sought to lead humanity astray. You may remember it was in a garden where death came through the fruit of a tree. You remember it was in a garden where Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their father, and cast all of humanity into sin and darkness. And you may also remember that it was in a garden that God himself preached the first time the gospel was preached. It was in a garden when God himself said, this woman, the the seed of this woman will be at war with the seed of the serpent, but the day is coming when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was proclaimed in a garden. Now we come to John 18, 19, and 20, and again, we find ourselves in a garden. We, we see God walking again with his people in a garden. We see in a garden another betrayer at hand, making war with the seed of the woman. We see in a garden it will not be disobedience to God the Father, but obedience to God the Father that will reverse the curse. We see in the, the context of a garden another tree that brings death But this tree isn't like that other tree because as Christ dies on that tree, he rises again and brings life. And we see in this garden, Jesus successfully crushing the head of the serpent. This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop to this story. It's so glorious. People think this could not have been written by a simple fisherman. This is just the backdrop to the story. Verse two says, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. We see Jesus chose this place because he was not trying to escape. He was not trying to flee death. He was not trying to flee his betrayer. He, uh, unlike King David, who was fleeing his betrayer, Jesus chose a place where he knew his betrayer could find him. Judas knew the place. And then as we read in verse three, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... Scholars tell us that, that that number would have been anywhere from three to 600 soldiers is what that word means, a band of soldiers. Seems a little extreme, doesn't it? 600, three to 600 soldiers armed 
against Jesus and 11 disciples. That's in addition to this crowd from the, the temple, the chief priests and the Pharisees. They, they all come to meet Jesus. We see this scene in a garden where hundreds of armed men are coming up against Jesus and 11 disciples. Now, that's the, the stage. That's the setting the scene. As we come now to verses four through six, we see the first quality of Christ. This is the, the first truth that, that you must have a firm grasp on as you face your own suffering, and it's this. Jesus remains sovereign in suffering. Jesus remains sovereign in suffering. Let's look together again at these verses. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. It's a mercy that we don't know all the suffering that will happen to us. We couldn't face life. It's God's mercy. Jesus didn't live that way. He lived all his life knowing he would go to the cross. He knew every detail, every word that Judas would say. He knew Judas would come up and kiss him on the face. He knew every detail. He knew all that would happen. Now, what does Jesus do knowing all of these things? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, what does he do? He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Jesus came forward. He saw the cross, he saw his suffering, and he walks towards it. He goes forward. That's the, that's the essence of the incarnation. He left his throne and he came into earth to suffer. And imagine if you were one of the disciples at that moment. You hear this group coming, you see these torches, you see hundreds of soldiers. They enter into the garden you're standing there, Jesus sees them, and you're thinking, what do we do? And what does Jesus do? He walks forward, he reveals himself, and he speaks to them, whom do you seek? You're thinking, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, do you see the odds here? This is not good, we need to go. And these same disciples who time and time again saw the glory and power of Jesus, they're about to witness it all over again. A William Hendrickson, one, one commentator says of this moment, the master of the winds and waves was also fully in control of the present situation. He knows everything that's about to happen and he goes forward and he speaks to them, whom do you seek? Verse five, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And that's that same expression he has used many times. I, I am who I am. This emphatic I am. This I am identifying himself with the I am, Yahweh of the Bible. He states to them, I am the man you are looking for. This is one man standing up against a small army, Humanly speaking, it does not look good. However, he is God. That's Yahweh standing there. He is sovereign even in the face of betrayal and sin and suffering. No army, no 
rogue cancer cell in your body. No political situation is outside of the sovereign hand and care of the great I am. The God who was sovereign then is sovereign now. He is sovereign even in suffering. And what happens to these men? Verse six, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's just like a small little sign where Jesus is reminding all of us he is God. He is in total control. He could stop that scene in a moment. He is sovereign. A simple phrase, two words out of his mouth, I am, ego and me, knocked a whole army down in front of him. Isaiah 11 verse four says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That is our sovereign God. He will come again one day and he will, this scene will be magnified across all of humanity and his enemies will fall before him. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And what's incredible is he could have done it at that moment. He was sovereign. Yet what does he do? But he submits himself to his father and to the suffering that was before him. And so in verses seven through nine, we see a next quality of Christ. In his moment of suffering and that we will all need in our moments of suffering, not only is he sovereign in suffering, And this is incredible, and this is so important for us. Jesus preserves his sheep in suffering. He preserves his sheep in suffering. Let's look at verses seven through nine. So he asked them again, as they're getting up from the ground, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. This was, verse nine, spoken to fulfill the word. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. If you can recall er earlier in John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep and he says not a a single one of his sheep is lost. That is a a statement that Jesus makes and that, that John draws attention to again. This is fulfilling that promise. One quality of a good shepherd is he's not just losing his sheep. When an enemy comes, when a wolf comes, When a thief comes, he doesn't say, well, you know, I have a lot of sheep. You can take a few. No, a good shepherd does not allow his sheep to be lost. He preserves his sheep. And the key in this moment and the key for us in the moments that we will face suffering is this. Jesus restrains and limits the suffering that his sheep go through. He restrains and limits the suffering that his sheep will go through. 
Now you may be thinking, well, when Jesus said that he's not gonna lose one of his sheep, I thought that was like a, a spiritual promise. Like, like they're never gonna lose their salvation. Like they're, they're, there's, they're never gonna walk away from him. And that is actually what Jesus meant by what he said. It is a spiritual promise. He will not lose his sheep. But the application in this situation is this. These men were not spiritually prepared to go to the cross with with Jesus yet. They were not prepared for the physical suffering that was before them. They were not spiritually prepared to go with Jesus to the cross. As we will quickly see, Peter does not understand what's going on. He will very soon deny Christ. They don't understand the cross. And it's not until they see Jesus risen from the dead and even that the spirit of God is poured in them are they spiritually prepared to die for Jesus. And it's incredible because we see that Jesus will eventually prepare these men for death. They will they will die. So this promise that that he's not lost one of his sheep is not a promise that, that, that Christians don't physically suffer and that Christians don't physically die. We all die. It is a spiritual promise that he will preserve his sheep. But in this moment, that means he is limiting the suffering they will go through because he knows that there's more preparation to be done. The day will come when they will boldly stand before corrupt rulers in defiance and die for Christ. That day will come, but it's, it's, not, it's not this night. They're not prepared. They're not ready. And there's a profound application for us. Your good shepherd limits your suffering. He sovereignly limits your suffering. He will not allow you to suffer to such an extent that you are spiritually lost. He limits it. He preserves it. He he keeps it at bay. And do you know what that also means? It means that when we and how we do suffer, our good shepherd is with us preserving us. It means that when we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our shepherd will be there preserving us. We need not fear. Am I going to walk away from Christ when I suffer in that way? He limits the suffering of his saints so that they will be preserved forever. And so we see he remains sovereign in suffering. We see he, he preserves his sheep in suffering. And finally, in verses 10 through 14, we will see this. We will see Jesus submits to his father in suffering. He submits to his father in suffering. And before we see this wonderful submission of Christ, we get, we get a a negative example to behold of of someone not trusting the sovereignty of God and not trusting in the preserving power of Christ and not submitting to the Father in suffering, but, but lashing out in his flesh, we see our brother Peter. So let's look first at Peter in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Certainly Peter's intent was admirable to some extent. He was defending his Lord. You could even commend him for his courage. I will die with you, Jesus. I see these 500 armed soldiers, but I have my fishing knife. 
And so he strikes. We can can admire Peter to some extent. However, Christ corrects him. And so we ought not to commend him too too far. He, He was not acting as he ought to act in this moment, in this trial. He did not understand the cross. He did not understand what it would be to trust God in suffering. He lashed out, he fought back in his own strength, in his own wisdom, according to his own desired ends. And Peter has a long way to go. And what's incredible, I won't read them now, but if you read the book of 1 Peter, you will see a man who has been radically transformed in his view of suffering, in his view of suffering for Christ, in his view of trusting God in suffering. And so we see Christ is patiently shepherding Peter to understand these truths just as he is shepherding us. We all need to continually to be conformed in our thinking as Christ views suffering. And so now in verse 11 through 14, we see Jesus. And let's, let's read together how Christ responds. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And pause there for a moment. Unlike Adam and Eve, In this garden, Jesus submits to his father in perfect obedience. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Jesus does not sin. He does not lash out. He trusts his father. He recognizes this is what the father has called me to do. And I will face even this incomparable suffering that he has for me. And we see the fruit of that submission to Christ in verses 12 through 14 because not only does he submit to God, he then submits himself to these wicked men. It's almost like it makes you sick to your stomach to read what Jesus does. Look at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The one who could slay them with a single word allows himself to be bound by these wicked men. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, walks forward and submits himself to God and to these men to give his life as a ransom for his people. We see here the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus submits himself to his father and he submits himself to these men. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it and certainly the disciples did not understand what was going on in that 
moment. However, we, we know the end of this story that as he was submitting himself to his father and to these men, he was actually successfully conquering sin and the devil. He would offer himself as a lamb that would be slain for the sins of his people. And so just to close and to think about this text, this beginning of the the passion story, just four simple reminders for your own heart. Jesus remains sovereign over this world, including your life, including your suffering. You can trust him. You, You must store these things in your heart for seasons of suffering. He is still God. Number two, he remains your shepherd in suffering. You will be preserved by Jesus. You will be preserved by your shepherd. Number three, Jesus suffered in your place. Oftentimes, people, when it comes to suffering and evil and theology, people ask the question, how could a good God ever allow suffering? As if we were the judges and and God is on trial and, and we say, how could you do that? But in Christ, we see that Jesus submits himself to the greatest suffering there is. Not just physical suffering, but to the cup of the wrath of God. He suffered the holy, righteous wrath of God for your and my sin and every sin of those who would trust in him. And so when we wrestle with what is the purpose of this suffering in this world, we can know this, Jesus himself has suffered far more Christian than you could ever imagine and will ever have to imagine so that you would not suffer for all of eternity. And so forth, we remember with this garden backdrop that not only is he sovereign over suffering and your shepherd in suffering, and not only did he suffer in your place, he will make all things right again. He will make all things right again. He is the second Adam. He is making a new creation. And he will come again and bring and create a new earth in which we will not be able to sin. We will not be able to suffer. There will not be the possibility of sin or suffering anymore. That serpent will be thrown forever into the lake of fire. You will be given a glorified body that will be incapable of doubt and sin and sorrow. He will make all things right. And so we look forward to that day, even as we suffer as what Paul would say in a light and momentary way, because when we compare our suffering today with the the weight of glory we have looking ahead of us, it's light. It doesn't compare to the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for these promises, and I thank you, Jesus, for who you are. You are the sovereign God. You are the good shepherd. And you have even suffered everything in our place. Increase our trust in you, Jesus, our awe and wonder of who you are. Holy Spirit, continue to show us Christ. If there are those here today who have yet 
to trust in you. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes? Would you help them see the depths of their sin and yet the the glory of Jesus and that there is forgiveness in Christ in believing in his name? I thank you for your church, Lord. I thank you that you are sustaining those among us who are suffering right now. And I thank you that you will sustain all of us as we face suffering to come. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. We thank you that you submitted yourself to the Father and to suffer in our place. And we thank you that the day is coming when suffering will be no more. We are reminded that though we have a foe, the devil, he is a defeated foe. He has been dealt a mortal wound. And the day is soon coming when he will be thrown forever into the lake of fire. We trust you, Jesus. And now we worship you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we'll worship for a song and then we'll come.